Well, it's good to be back among you today, and it's good to be able to speak to you today without an interpreter. <laughs> I realized as I was speaking, and we did, we did a number of conferences in different states across India, conferences with pastors, and some of them were rather large, some of them approaching up to 200 pastors, and as we did these conferences, I realized a couple of things about myself. One, I, I don't tend to teach from a manuscript, so it's a little bit hard sometimes in following my own line of thinking uh, when I'm just trying to go with the flow a little bit. And so sometimes I would get going a little bit, I would step aside from the podium, and then the interpreter would have to tell me to slow down, so I know how you feel sometimes. And of course, I could never be exactly sure that he was saying what I just said. I was hoping, I was hopeful that he was getting it, but was never quite sure. One part that was kind of interesting and beneficial, though, and so I thought maybe I could add this to sort of my sermon uh, presentation to you. Having, having an interpreter beside me gave me some good affirmation sometimes. Because if I said something that he had never heard before, he would say, aha. I'd hear him whisper under his breath, aha, then he would say it like this is some new revelation. But I wanted to make sure he understood there's nothing new under the sun if you're teaching the truth from Scripture, but he would still say, aha. But if I said something really good that he thought was beneficial to the congregation, before he would interpret, he would say, amen, amen, and then he would say it. So I need someone here saying that <laughs> if I say something good. But as Tommy said, thank you. Uh, thank you for your prayers for us. And really, let me encourage you. I, I don't know what your daily prayer routine looks like, but in the routine of your daily prayers, I, I do ask that you would pray. I know this is a broad prayer, and God knows the needs and the situations, and I believe he'll honor this. Pray for the church in India today. Pray for, those, pray for those indigenous pastors. When we ask for prayer requests at break points in, in our conferences with them, in every state, this prayer request was one of the very first given to us. Pray about the anti-conversion law. If you know anything at all about the current uh, culture, particularly the religious culture in India, there is a hard-line Hindu government now in power nationally. Now, each state or region has its own government, um, still functioning under that. They have a lot of autonomy, but they still function under that national government. There's a hardline Hindu government that has a policy of one people, one religion. To be truly Indian is to be Hindu. And they're pushing for the passing of laws, which have now passed in 11 of the states, that prohibits conversion. And I was reading in a newspaper uh, in a hotel lobby waiting for dinner one night, and the law specifically prohibits conversion on these three, or in these three ways. First, uh, by coercion, no conversion by coercion, no conversion by deception, and then the third, no conversion by allurement. Now think about that just for a moment. I was talking with some of the pastors, and I said, allurement, that is the gospel. That's what it means to give good news. I'm alluring you to the beauty and goodness of Christ by telling you the good news that your sins can be forgiven. You can be made right with the one and only true God. You can have everlasting life with him. So the very gospel itself, just so that you know, is under attack. And the functional effect of that, although there have been no successful cases up to date in the courts, there have been many, many arrests. But more than just the public or official effect of that law has been the public effect of it. And Christians there are living in fear. Um, there have been more and more assaults. This past year, 2022, was the most violent towards Christians in history in the nation of India. People are being beaten. People are being arrested. People are being intimidated. At a break point in one of our conferences, when again, when I was asking people to pray, and they prayed, asked us to pray about the conversion law, 
They also said pray for the persecuted pastors here in India. One of the young men who was a church planter pastor in a, a smaller town began to walk towards the front. In his hand, he carried his cell phone. And he said, let me show you something. He said it through the interpreter and showed me a picture on his cell phone that I really wasn't ready for. And it's an image that's burned in my memory now that I'm quite sure I won't ever forget. And I don't say that lightly or superficially. But he showed me the picture of a friend of his, another pastor in his town, that had been beaten to death simply for leading a church service and preaching the gospel. And he showed me his face, his disfigured face and head and body that had been beaten to death, all for the sake of, of conversion so that people might know the one true God. And I won't bore you with our details. Um, we'll have some more time to share with you, India. Part of our travels, we got exposed to a large percentage of the culture, I think. We were traveled extensively through South Asia and multiple in-country flights, train rides and such. We visited a few of the temples, um, such overwhelming darkness and despair there, hopelessness really for the people. But the need of the gospel could not be any greater. But the need of the gospel is great everywhere, everywhere we are. So before I delve into this text on conversion today, let's pray. I promised them we would. I said, when I go back home, I'm going to tell my church, I'm going to tell pastors I know to pray for you. Pray for the persecuted church in India. Pray for those pastors who are being faithful in the face of persecution. Pray that they hold fast to the gospel and pray with confidence in the sovereignty of God that though people can be bound, as we saw in the book of Acts, though people can be bound, they can be beaten, they can be imprisoned, they can be silenced, the gospel is not bound. And God will accomplish his purposes through it, through his faithful people, and the church will prevail even there. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll look into his word together. Father, we gather as a company of the redeemed made so by the supernatural work of your Holy Spirit. You breathed new life into us. You granted us the precious gift of faith. By your grace, we trusted in you, and the veil was removed from us that we might see your glory in the face of Jesus. We attribute all of that to you and none of that to ourselves. But Father, we are so grateful, and we will be eternally grateful for that, I'm sure. Father, you changed us, you rescued us, you delivered us, you redeemed us, you made us your own people, you made us brothers and sisters, you made us a church, you gave us life, life eternal. We praise you for that. And Father, we were so encouraged to see the evidence of that happening in faraway places, in difficult cultures, and in the midst of absolute, even palpable, spiritual darkness. Father, we thank you for the sovereignty of your word and the promise of a prevailing church and a word that goes out and accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. So we thank you for that. So Lord, we pray for, for courage for these spiritual leaders, for these pastors and church leaders, these faithful disciples. We pray for confidence in the gospel, confidence in your word. We pray for a high level of commitment that they would do that which pleases you regardless of the cost to them. Father, we do is for our brothers and sisters, our, our real spiritual family there, we do pray for their protection, for their safety, for their security, for their hope. Father, we pray that you would watch over them and protect them and cause their ministries to thrive and their churches to be healthy and grow. And Father, that in all those things, you would be glorified. I pray that they would be the aroma of Christ there for all people, for those unto life and for some unto death, that they would represent you well, living or dying, they would proclaim Christ. And Lord, make us a faithful people, so grateful for what you've done for us and our conversions, but also so desirous 
our own family and friends and neighbors, that you might convert them as well for your glory, for their everlasting good. That's why we pray these things. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen. In an article called The Dirtiest Word, or One of the Dirtiest Words, uh, Brad Wheeler writes this. He said, conversion is a dirty word. It's scandalous in today's pluralistic and relativistic world to contend for one religious truth over and against another. It smacks of pride, arrogance, disrespect, perhaps hatred, maybe even violence. At least that's the consensus among many of the secular elite. Popular television personality Bill Maher says Christianity can only be explained as a neurological disorder. In the minds of our current culture, only the most unenlightened, uneducated, and uncouth Neanderthal would both believe and contend for a conversion to religious faith, especially Christianity. It's absolutely what the modern man does not need. At least the way, that's the way our culture sees it. But you and I know what it means if we're in Christ to be converted. We didn't simply choose one religion among the others as better, more beneficial to us. We, we didn't simply weigh all the options and consider one more intellectually tenable or one more emotionally satisfying or one more socially rewarding. If we're truly in Christ, we've been the recipient of a supernatural act of God whereby God himself, by his Holy Spirit, rescues us. He invades our lives. He conquers our unbelief. He changes our hearts. He makes us part of the circumcised, not from the outside with external works and actions, but on the inside, changing our very hearts in order to know and love God. And conversion is at the heart of what it means for us to be a church. In fact, I've often said this in our Membership Matters classes when I've led them. I said, I think today, and I'm pretty sure of this, I'm pretty, pretty convinced of this opinion, the number one health problem in churches today across America is this. It's unconverted church members. It's a gathering of people calling themselves a church who have never been truly converted to Christ. That's why, for one reason, there's so much conflict. That's why there's so much discord. That's why there's so much division over truth and doctrine. That's why there is so much abandonment today, really, of what the gospel is in favor of other things. Good works, perhaps. Good deeds, good actions community maybe, friendships, relationships, but not the kingdom of God. But you and I are ambassadors of Christ. And to be an ambassador of Christ means to be an ambassador of the gospel that leads one to Christ and puts one in the kingdom of God. And so that all centers on conversion. In fact, in our covenant, if you were here this morning, and I hope you were if you're a church member in our combined life groups, you heard paragraph one of our covenant at Calvary Baptist Church begins this way, having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and on our profession of faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's who we are. That's our identity. As a church, we are a people of God. We are a body of Christ. We are a local embodiment, a visible picture of the church universal, the church invisible, here in this place made up of those who belong to Christ. That's what conversion is. So we're going to talk about that today, conversion and a biblically faithful church. is probably one of the most, if not the most important doctrine we have to guard, conversion and a biblically faithful church. So open your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Now I've got a lot of information to throw at you, and I have no interpreter to hinder me, so I'm going to go through this rapidly today. And I was just thinking as, as Tommy was speaking, and it is, it is good to be back. Somebody asked me, did you, did you eat well there? And I said, you know, I started off pretty solid. I was going at it pretty hard because I made a decision. This is my second time in India. I thought, you know, the first time I didn't really give it a fair shot. 
And you know, my brother had told me, he said, oh man, I love Indian food. In fact, it's our favorite food. I said, it's your favorite food because you've never been to India. <laughs> but he says, no, you're just not eating the right things. You're just not trying the right things. So I said, okay, this time I'll try everything. So by the last three or four days of our trip, and Tommy can attest to this, he was doing the same. I was trying everything that was white rice and not much else. <laughs> so I'm very eager today to eat a hamburger that the Hindus wouldn't let us eat. Or maybe eat some bacon that the Muslims wouldn't let us eat. Or maybe eat them both together. So <laughs> that's lunch. My stomach is already rumbling. <laughs> Let's talk about 1 Timothy for a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this. Now let me stop there just for a second. I'm going to build on that basic premise in just a moment. We know that the law is good. So I hope that's something that you know. I'm going to affirm that and give you some basis for that in just a moment. We know that the law is good with this condition. If you use it correctly, you can misuse the law of God. The law of God can be misapplied. So he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, what should we understand about the law? That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the basic premise of what Paul is saying to Timothy. He says, we know that the law is good unless it's misunderstood or misused. There's a fundamental goodness to the law of God. And when we say law, what Paul is referencing here is the entire law of God. It's the law of Christ, the goodness of God in Christ. It's a universal law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and your neighbor as yourself, in which all the other laws are fulfilled. But it's also the Old Testament law. It's the many commandments of the, of the Old Testament law. He says the law is good. Rabbi Hillel in the Jewish tradition says this famously and often repeated in Jewish congregations would be this, the more law, the more life. The more you understand the law, the more you follow it, the more you have life. What makes the law good? What makes the law good? And again, I'm going over this simply kind of a high altitude view. What makes the law good? Well, fundamentally, the law is good because the law ultimately is a reflection of, is an extension of even, God himself. The law is an extension of God. We could almost say the law is God. Not the law is a God, but the law is a picture of God. It's how we understand who God is. We understand what God's character is, what God's nature is like. What does God command? Even in the minutia of the law that we might see in books like Deuteronomy or Leviticus, it reveals something of God to us. So the law is good because of, of God, the God that it reveals to us. The law is also good because it's life-giving. That's the reference that Hillel made. It's, it's life-giving, and that's the purpose that we see in the law written in the Psalms, that your word is good, your law is perfect. Over and over again, we see David and the other psalmists praising the law because if we do these things, we're going to be blessed by them. In the Old Testament, as God was establishing a people and he gave them a law to follow, it was so that they would be blessed by it, so that they would be set apart, not just in obedience, doing what the other nations didn't do, but enjoying what the other nations didn't enjoy, the law is intended to be life-giving to us. Now, a sidebar question, which I made a lot of notes on, I made a mental note to myself, another time and place, 
I'll answer this much more deeply. And we have, as a matter of fact, as we've gone through the book of Romans together and the book of Galatians together. So if you had a mind to do so, you could delve into our archives on the website. You can find sermons about the law from those books. But a sidebar question is this. Do we need the law today as Christians? Do Christians need the law today? And I want to give you, really, this is not a quick answer to be sufficient, but let me offer a quick answer nonetheless. Do we need the law? The answer is yes. We do need the law as Christians today. Are we under the law? No, we're not. Paul made it very clear in his writings that the law, what we call the Old Testament, all the entirety of the law has been set aside because Christ has come. The entire Mosaic covenant is no longer in force for believers. It's kind of common today if you ask people this question, you're having a theological discussion. Maybe you've heard this tripart division of the law. So people will say, well, there's moral law, civil law, and ceremonial law. Ceremonial law only apply to the Old Testament worship, temple and tabernacle. Civil law applied to the nation of Israel as a people state. And moral law, well, that's universal. And so we're not under two of those, we're still under one. But I would argue ultimately we're not under any of those in the same sense anymore. They've all been absolved. So when people are giving that argument, why should you why should you not murder? Or when you have laws about human sexuality and gender, they say, you know, why would you obey that? You don't obey the law about not eating shellfish or having garments of mixed clothing or mixed fibers, do you? And conflating those two. Well, the reason why you and I don't murder is not simply because it's in the Ten Commandments, but because it's consistent with the character and nature of God revealed throughout all of Scripture. And so we're not under the law in the same way. I'll give you this last little tidbit this little anecdote I asked at the end of the first teaching session the very first teaching conference this was a two-day conference and after I just I mean I poured my heart out Philippians chapter 3 and I'm just I'm just hammering this I'm hitting these points about the worth of Christ above all things the value of Christ and and trading in this world's treasures for the goodness of Christ etc just been pounding this how good is Christ how much better is Jesus and everything and one of the uh, organizers said it might be helpful if you ask them if they have any questions I said, sure, be happy to. So I'll do my best, whatever you ask. So I said, I want to open this up just to some questions. If something I said, uh, something you heard, if you want some clarification on, and it didn't really, you know, no one was responding exactly. I said, or if you want to talk about the church in our culture or something like that. So if you have a question about what we've talked about, the church, et cetera, please raise your hand. I saw a guy in the back, first guy, I mean, he was quick to raise his hand, boom, threw his hand up. And I didn't understand exactly what he was saying at first. He was saying in English, but he was saying with a very strong accent that I said, I tell you what, brother, say it in your language to him, and then he'll say it to me, no offense. And this is the question he asked me. Is it a sin for a man not to shave all of his facial hair? I said, wait, wait, hold on a second. Ask me again. Is it a sin for a man to shave, but only shave part of his facial hair? Is that a sin? Now, here's the irony of that. Okay, A. <laughs> but B, here's the second irony of that. Just that very morning, I was looking at myself in the mirror in the hotel, and I hadn't shaved for about two weeks. The week before we went and up to this point, maybe two and a half weeks. I just had a little, you know, thin white beard there, and I thought, man, you look old. You look rough, and I said, I'm going to shave. And I think God set me up for this object lesson, unbeknownst to me. And so he asked me, I thought, you know, of all the strange questions, now, the, one of the gentlemen who had organized it began to rebuke him for asking a question like that. Brother, this is about the, the text we just heard, not about those. I said, no, no, let, let me answer. But apparently, in some of those communities where the church has existed for some time, 
The natural trajectory of those churches has been, unfortunately, not to vibrancy, not to gospel literacy, not to community engagement, but it's been to legalism. And so not understanding the right purposes of the law, there is some obscure text aimed at ceremonial Israel about shaving. And I apparently had violated one of those. And so I told one of the pastors afterwards, you know, I bet it was so hard for that guy to listen to me the whole time talking about the worth of Christ when, God forbid, how dare I shave part of my beard. Now here's what legalism looks like, and then I'm going to come back to the text. Y'all stay with me, okay? It's a detour. This is what legalism looks like. A lot of the men in that room had beards. In fact, I would say the majority of men did. But here's something I noticed. How many, how many bearded men do we have here? Raise your hand. Be proud. Now, do you manly bearded men, do you shave any part of that? I mean, like, do you shave your cheeks when it starts getting up close around, you know, your eyeballs? You shave this part off a little bit? So do they. Or when it starts to grow down here and starts connecting with this hair that's coming out of the top of your shirt, you shave some of that, right? Because you don't want one continuous set of hair, right, Kevin, right? So do they. And with all the irony of legalism, I can't shave it here, but you can shave it there, okay? But they didn't understand the right application of the law. The purpose of the law is this, and, and I borrow this, and I want to give you the technical terms that one theologian uses. The law has a revelatory, stick with me, and a pedagogical function. In other words, it shows us God, and there still is a teaching function. So even when we look at those Old Testament laws that look obscure, about how you're supposed to do commerce, for instance, and don't do this and don't do this, or about interest and how you do loans and all those things. Those are laws that apply to Israel and their businesses and their life and community. They don't apply to us, but the teaching in them does of honesty and integrity, of honoring God, so that it has a, a teaching function. So when we look at the law, the questions of the law, the purpose of the law, as Paul wrote to Timothy, is not to approve the conduct of righteous people but to expose and condemn the conduct of sinful people. If you're looking at the law as a way to judge others or as a way to validate yourself, which is the way Israel had begun to do. You remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? He asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, how do I, how do I complete the whole thing? What's the end result of the whole thing? What must I do? And Jesus says, well, you know. You know the law and the prophets. And what did the young man say? I have kept those laws since my youth. And Jesus says, there's one thing you lack. Take all you have, go and sell it, and give it to the poor. And the Bible says the young man went away very sad, distressed, because he had many possessions. Oh, what was Jesus doing in that moment? Was he giving another law? Was he giving another condition to get into heaven? You're saying, the only way I get into heaven is if I sell all I have and give it to the poor. It's not what Jesus was doing. Jesus was, in fact, challenging his very understanding of the law. You say you kept all the laws from your youth. But I'm showing you by your attitude and actions, you have not even kept law number one. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. But what do you value for your security? What do you value for your sense of identity? What do you value as a treasure most in your life? Your possessions. You haven't even obeyed number one. Until you obey number one, you can't follow me. The law doesn't simply give us our approval. We don't look at the law and say, hey, look, I'm doing pretty good, eh? The law diagnoses and exposes sinful people. Real quickly, Galatians chapter 3. Now, I'm not going to read all those verses. That's a large uh, section of Scripture. I give it to you there for your own research and to validate what I'm saying. But if you look at Galatians chapter 3 and then to chapter 4, you can see the primary purpose of the law. The primary purpose of the law in Galatians is to enclose everyone 
all people everywhere, under sin, to show that everyone is under the dominion of sin. In the language of Paul, to say you're under the law means you're also under sin. Because the law has revealed sin. If you know and understand the law, you know and understand sin, you're now under sin. You become a slave to sin. So that all will see salvation is only possible through Christ. So Galatians is all about the freedom that we have in Christ. Freedom from what? Freedom from sin. Freedom from the weight of sin, the destruction of sin that the law has revealed. It's not being free from the law. If someone reads Galatians and comes up with antinomianism, which means I don't have to obey any law, you've missed it completely. The purpose of Galatians is to show that the law has shown that you're under sin, and the only way to be set free of sin and its death is Christ. In Galatians, Paul writes that the law does not have the power to grant life, number one, so it can only bring a curse of death. He writes that the law imprisons and holds captive everyone under sin, so instead of granting us freedom, the law actually locks us up. It says that we are guilty, in fact. And number three, it puts us all under the authority and power of sin. Now, in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25, you can see that the primary purpose of the law is this. It exposes sinfulness in man. It reveals to us what sin is. It exposes the sinfulness in our own lives and hearts. And the ultimate effect of sin, death, judgment, destruction, thus driving people in desperation to God. What should the law effectively do? If it's rightly understood, if I hear the law and understand it correctly, it's going to drive me first to conviction, maybe even despair, that might lead to repentance so that I might turn to Christ. So in Romans 7, which talks about the law and then sin growing under the law, is teaching us this basic human reality. In Romans 7, sin has taken on the character of rebellion against the law. I mean, the very thing that the law is supposed to do, bring us life. Here's how you live and enjoy life and enjoy the blessings of God, has brought us the opposite. Because tell me this in human nature from your toddler's own up. The more we understand the law, the more in our broken, sinful state, apart from Christ, we have this corrupt desire to go against it. You know the sayings that we use, forbidden fruit is sweeter? And the very thing that the law denies us, apart from Christ, those become the things that we desire more and more and more. Now, he says in this passage that the application of the law then, so that's the purpose of the law. The application of the law, he says in verse 11, is to be used in accordance with the gospel. Now, so track with me here. I don't want to lose you in, in the high weeds here. The gospel is absolutely essential for us in the conversion of the lost when we're sharing the good news of Christ, it's a good news that overcomes, that outweighs, that defeats the bad news, which is that we are enslaved to sin, and the law reveals that to us. So you and I, we use the law in accordance with the gospel. In other words, we don't teach one without the other. Not yet if that makes sense. In India with the pastors, one of the concerns or complaints we heard often was this. In a lot of the churches in India, we're hearing people give portions of the gospel without giving the whole thing. And I said, well, what do you mean? Well, they'll make statements like, God loves you. It's not an untrue statement. It's just not a complete statement. Or they'll even say something like, Jesus died for you. It's not an untrue statement, but it's not a complete statement. And when I say complete, 
believing that or hearing that, understanding that, is not enough to save anyone. No one is saved by believing that God loves them or that Jesus was a real historical figure who died a historical death. In other words, they're leaving out major components thinking they're giving the gospel. And that first primary necessary component is God himself in his holiness, God himself in his creation and in his laws that he made to support and bless his creation, and mankind's universally and personally our rebellion against God and his laws and his creation. And because of that, we deserve judgment and death. That's why we say Jesus is good news. The good news is this, that though we are sinners, Christ died for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And so the gospel requires law. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. How do we use law with gospel? Romans 8 verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Circle that. So you're saying there's something the law cannot do. Absolutely. Listen. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned men in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law, circle that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. How do we walk according to the spirit? So what is he saying? Let's talk about the law first. What are its limitations? Well, we know here's what the law can do. If the law is rightly applied, that is, if what the law prescribes or prohibits, okay, is rightly prescribed, and justice is a result of violating the law, that means if, if someone who violates the law is caught quickly and punished appropriately, then what is the benefit of that? Order, civility, peace, a decent culture to live in. Would you agree? Are you tracking with me? I mean, this is what we're not seeing in our culture today. This is what we're not seeing across the board. We're not seeing the laws properly applied and justice as a result. We're seeing people get away with doing whatever. We're seeing lawlessness run rampant. We're seeing sinfulness run rampant. We're seeing people who may be caught, may be arrested, justice not being applied, people not being treated as they deserve. We're not living in an age of justice. Would you agree? That's not a political statement. That's just a common sense observation. Nod your head if you're with me. That's the culture that we live in today. In India, it's a bit different. He said, did you notice, one of our guides said, did you notice you don't see many police around here? And I was thinking in my head, yeah, I thought about that. wasn't really encouraged by that, but he said, you know, we police ourselves, which can be both an encouraging and frightful proposition. Well, I asked him this. I said, okay, I'm just wondering hypothetically, with the way all of you drive around here. And again, I, Tommy and I were talking about this on the way back. I said, you know, Tommy... You and I are going to try to describe this. We're going to try to describe this to our spouses and our family, everything what it was like. They're not going to understand. They're not going to understand. We spent a four-and-a-half-hour drive from one city to another to get to an airport. Left about 9 p.m., got there about 1 a.m., and I was hoping it wouldn't be quite so bad that period of time. But I literally was, I was in the front seat. I just leaned it back, and I prayed, and I said, God, just get us there safely because if I open my eyes every time the brakes are slammed or the horns are hit, or, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a heart attack in here. My anxiety was through the roof. I mean, I, I, honestly, I can't explain it to you. But asking this, I said, so, so what happens, God forbid, if one of these many pedestrians that you have missed by centimeters, you hit one of them? Are they responsible because they're in the middle of the road, or are you responsible? He said, oh, no, I'm responsible. We're responsible for what's in front of us. I said, so what would happen? There are no police around. 
He said, well, I can tell you what would happen. All the people would stop, and they would drag me out of the car, and they would beat me. He said, there'd be a mob that would beat me immediately. I said, so what would happen to us? You know, we're the ones that paid you. You know, we're the, we're the, we're the innocent American passengers. He said, you would leave. You would flee the scene. I said, what about my luggage? <laughs> go. Just go. He said, wow, that's wild. He said, no, no, we would enforce that justice immediately if you consider that justice. But in our culture today, we don't. But see, here's what it's saying. The law will do that if it's rightly applied. And if you rightly apply the law, in other words, if you catch and then punish people appropriately to the law, that itself provides an incentive for people not to break the law. Agreed? Now, they may still want to break the law. They may still have a darker, evil heart that desires to break the law. They may look for more opportunistic ways to break the law, but as a general rule, it's going to be limited. But see, that's the limitation of the law itself. It doesn't touch the heart. It doesn't change the way that people think or feel or live because it can't. It doesn't change our desires. It only prevents sin because of consequences. So what Paul is saying is this. The law cannot make anybody righteous. I could give you all these rules to follow, but I cannot make any one of you want to follow them. If I had the power and the force sufficient to require you to, I could force you obedience or compliance at least superficially, but I couldn't change your heart. The law cannot make us righteous. It cannot change our hearts. So God does for us in Christ what the law cannot do. And there are two terms here that I want to give you, and I won't give much time on them. One, it imputes righteousness to us. Because of Christ, we have an imputed righteousness. If the law can't make me righteous, if it can't make me good, if I can't say, look, here I am, look at my life, it is so screwed up in so many ways, I've done so much wrong, I've made so many mistakes, so many errors, I've lived such a rough life, what should I do? And I say, follow these rules, keep these commands, and God will accept you, receive you. That's a lie. That's a lie. By works of righteousness, the Bible says, will no man be justified. So if the law can't do it, if I can't have righteousness, I need it imputed to me. I need something outside of me put onto me. That's Jesus. That's our hope. That's your hope as a Christian. That's why we sing these songs about conversion and redemption and salvation. Because God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to us. So that when we stand before God one day, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, if you've been genuinely saved, regenerated, have new life, you have the righteousness of Christ. So when God judges you on that day, who does he see? His son. When God rewards you on that day, who does he reward? His son. When you're called a co-heir of Jesus, with whom are you a co-heir? Jesus, because of his righteousness. So it's imputed. But it's also an enabled righteousness. So the righteous requirement of the law, how do we get that? Jesus, who kept all the law. The walking not according to the flesh, how I used to live. You see all these times that Paul writes about we once were, you once were, I once was, but now in Christ we are, you are, I am, those kind of statements? How is that made possible? How do we go from being what we used to be to though we're not yet perfect, what we are becoming now? How did that happen? That's an enabled righteousness by the Spirit of Christ in us. So that's what he says the law can't do. It gives us imputed rights. I mean, the law can't make us righteous. It can't make us want to live or able to live righteously, so we need Christ. Everybody clear? Are we good with that? This is where conversion comes in. Look at the second part. Look at verse 12. I thank him 
who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. It's what I used to be. It's not who I am. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the most critical statement in all this text. This is the point of everything. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, sinners who cannot save themselves, sinners who cannot by their own strength, ability, or even would ever want to because their desires are not in place to fulfill the law. He saves us, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, as an ambassador for Christ, my life is on display regarding the patience of God who saved me to show them, if he can save me, he can surely save you. If he can save me, the blasphemer, the persecutor, the insolent opponent, I was an enemy of the cross, Paul says, and yet he saved me. In fact, in the book of Acts, we saw this text. Before Paul was even born, God had determined a course for his life. That's the absolute sovereignty of God. I talked to these pastors, trying to give them hope. I told them, I, I want to do two things for you. I want to give you hope, encouragement today, but I also want to give you the sort of hope that causes you to persevere and finish well because I understand the challenges are, are steep but the worth is great, so finish well. And I talked to them about this supernatural hope, this sovereign hope we have. Some of you are going to be talking to a little Hindu boy. He's from a family of Hindu believers as far back as he can see. And the darkness is pervasive. But he's going to hear the gospel. He's going to respond. And one day he's going to be in the seat that you are sitting in. And he's going to be an instrument of God's grace for a whole new generation of people. And even when he was in his Hindu mother's belly, God was already working out his plan and purpose for his life from all eternity. It's a glorious truth that we trust in. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. But I receive mercy for this reason, that Christ might display, he says. And then listen to this statement of praise. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When you think about your salvation, when you sing about it, when you lay down at night and give God thanks for it, that you go to bed secure in the hands of Christ and you wake up the same, to whose credit is that? Who gets the praise for that? You? God, I did so good today. Look at me. Look at me. I am saved. I feel it. I get up tomorrow and I'm going to do good tomorrow and I'll still keep being saved. No, I go to bed secure in the arms of Christ and I wake up the same. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Very quickly, for time's sake, at the heart of conversion is the concept of change. Change. That's what conversion is about. It's the concept of change. The U-turn of a person's life. A whole person, their whole life turning away from sin. Turning to Christ for their salvation. In some cultures, it's from idol worship to God worship. From a false temple to the temple that is Christ himself. For some religious people, it's from self-justification to Christ's justification. For some rebellious people, it's from self-rule to God's people. Conversion is what happens when God awakens the spiritually dead 
Conversion is what happens when by His Holy Spirit He grants us repentance and faith so we turn to Him in Christ. So when Jesus calls us to re repent and believe the gospel in Mark 1.15, what is He calling us to do? To be converted, a radical change of life. In Luke 9.23, when Jesus calls, up, calls us to take up our crosses and follow Him, He's calling us to conversion, a whole new life, lived under a whole new king. And for this to happen, conversion to happen, God has to do it. So many references, Ephesians 2, verse 1, Romans 6, 17, Colossians 2, 13, 2 Timothy 2, 25. Listen, conversion, listen to this, believers. Listen to this, those of you who are members of our church who call yourself Calvary. Conversion is not a one-time event with no implications for how we live. Conversion is a life-changing event, a radical life-changing event, the invasion of a new king conquering an old king, an old spirit driven out, a new spirit taking the throne. Conversion is, conversion is a, a long-term process of sanctification. We have been saved. We are being saved. One day we will be saved. You know, conversion is not optional. Acts 17.30 says that God commands all people everywhere to repent. Why do we send missionaries? Why do we take up an offering? Why do we go out on short-term mission trips? To obey the command of Christ so that people might repent and believe the gospel and be saved. Conversion is not a, a formula or a formulaic prayer. It's not raise your hand and say this after me. Conversion certainly involves praying. Certainly involves calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. That's a portion of it. But conversion is a supernatural encounter with God himself. God grips a man. God reveals himself to a man or a woman. God changes the heart of that person. God grants them the ability to repent. And they fall on their faces, their knees, figuratively or literally like the Apostle Paul did on the road to Damascus before the true and living Lord. And he changes their lives. That's conversion. The Bible says that we're not okay. We're not okay. That's the whole dilemma. That's the problem. We see this. I saw this thread of discussion on Twitter yesterday. Um, God accepts us as we are, but doesn't want us to stay that way or something like that. We repeat that sort of thing all the time. No, that's the whole point. God doesn't accept us as we are. We're unacceptable to God as we are. We're not okay. The Bible says we're dead in our sins. We're the objects of God's righteous anger. We've been foolishly deceived by sin and the devil to be slaves of sin. We sold ourselves into this with disobedience. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You're not spiritually sick or spiritually weak. You're dead in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is our humanity apart from Christ. Colossians 2.13 says, You who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh. John 3.36, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Titus 3.3, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We were not okay. That's our condition according to the Bible. Enslaved, condemned, dead. Clearly change is needed. That's what conversion is. It's change. And the change that we need is a change of heart. It's not a change of religion. 
It's not even a change of behavior, which will certainly naturally follow a change of heart. But it begins with the change of the heart, the inner man. Ezekiel 36 is the promise of God in the new covenant. The old covenant says be circumcised as a mark that you trust in my covenant promise to you. Genesis 17, Abraham was commanded to be circumcised in every subsequent generation of Israelites. But the new covenant, the better covenant, the one we have in Christ, is a promise of a circumcised heart. I'll give you a new heart, he says, and a new spirit I'll put in you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's conversion. Romans 3, 19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. What do you mean mouth may be stopped? Any mouth that would claim to be acceptable before God would be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So it's conversion that we need. A conversion is a change of heart. Now again, going quickly for time's sake, track through my notes with me if you would. God's grace is what makes this change possible. This is not self-effort. The gospel is not a gospel of human effort. That's why Paul stood so strongly against those in Galatians who would add anything to the gospel. Believe in Jesus, sure. Believe that he died, was buried, rose again. Believe in that for sure. Believe that he's coming again. But also, brothers, to be saved, make sure that you are circumcised and then the whole gospel collapses because it's not good news if any portion of it depends on me. It is good news that it all weighs on Christ, and that's his grace. Our conversion comes at God's initiative. Why are any of us saved? You say, because I chose Christ. You chose Christ because he chose you. It's always his initiative. Always the initiative of Christ, drawing, reaching, compelling, revealing, illuminating, convicting. Our inability, our inability to be pleasing to God, our inability to be right with God, our inability to live rightly is met by God's gracious ability. Christ fulfills all righteousness for us. The Spirit of Christ in us empowers us to live righteous lives. And why is God graceful towards us? Why does God show anyone grace? Because of his mercy. God is a God of great mercy. Mercy, which means God does not give us what we deserve. But he treats us according to his mercy, his loving kindness. That's the catalyst to his grace. Paul writes to Timothy that mercy reveals the heart of God and the need of man. What was the need of man? Paul says, Paul says, I was ignorant. In my sin, I was ignorant of the one true God. In my self-righteousness, I was ignorant of the righteousness of Christ. In my zeal to live the way I was living, I was ignorant of the means that one might truly know God. And because of my ignorant, sinful state, that's my need. God gives his grace. God shows mercy because of his patience towards us. How many of you are glad that God is patient towards us? He's patient. How many of you are glad that for your straying or lost sons or daughters, God is patient. Keep praying. Keep trusting. Keep speaking. Keep loving. For God is patient. God is good. Remember that conversion is always a divine work. If I can talk you into being converted, someone else can talk you out of it. If I can present one good way of living, someone slicker and smarter can come along and teach you a better way. No, but when one, is, when one is transformed by the power of Christ, when one is delivered from darkness, they don't become undelivered. The transformed do not become untransformed. The adopted sons of the living God do not become orphans ever again. It's a, it's a divine work. 
How do we know that conversion has happened to us? How do we know that we are the company of the redeemed? How do we know that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life? How do we know? What are the external evidences of that? The confirmations of that? Two things. You know them. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. How might I know that someone is truly in Christ? How are we to judge their response accurately? How are we to properly administer the keys to the kingdom to see if that person makes a right confession of Christ and is truly a confessor of Christ? How might we as a church family admit them into our fellowship, acknowledge and affirm their salvation via baptism? Conversion would be marked by repentance and faith. Conversion equals repentance and faith. So in conversion, we turn our minds, our emotions, our wills from the service of an idol or false god or ourselves to another god. By faith, we trust in God and his word, believing like Abraham, all of God's saints, that God who promised is faithful. What he promised in the gospel, he's faithful to. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live and never die. Do you believe this? He's faithful to that. Bruce Demarest in his classic, The Cross and Salvation. If it's not in our bookstore, I'll make sure that it gets there. For those of you interested in delving deeply into the subject. Bruce Demarest, he said, Repentance, the forsaking of sin and the cultivating of a new hope and faith, turning to Christ and belief and trust, are related to one another as two sides of a coin. The two are interdependent responses, each incomplete without the other. Conversion involves both a believing repentance and a penitent faith. They go together. What are some implications of this very quickly? For you personally, listen, you didn't simply make a decision. When God converted you, he made you a disciple. You didn't just simply pray a prayer. You were not issued a divine insurance card, a get-out-of-hell-free card. You were made a disciple of Christ. There is no biblical separation or distinction between conversion and discipleship. All those that Christ converts, he also makes disciples. The two run together. They cannot be separated. Your life is now to be, should be, marked by deep change, not superficial change. I know new stuff. I believe new things. I'm trying not to cuss as much. It runs deeper than that. We've not been perfected yet, but we have a heart that strives against sin and strives for godliness. That's the mark of a believer. You have a new identity. You have a new identity. You're now a child of the living God. You're adopted into his family. You're a fellow member of God's household. You're a servant or slave of Christ himself. You're a soldier in the army of heaven. So many identities made new by Christ. As I told our brothers and sisters in India, here's the amazing thing. Biblically, we may not sense it or feel it personally or sociologically, but when I'm addressing those Christians in India, I am more akin to them. I'm in closer relationship to them. I have far more in common with them, even though we don't speak the same language enjoy the same sort of activities or culture, I'm more akin to them than I am my neighbor across the street who doesn't know Christ. This is what it means to be part of that new identity. On us as community, speaking of that, when you became a Christian, you became a son first, but that also made you a brother. You became a daughter first of the living God, but it also made you a sister of every other brother or sister in Christ. And it's not just the invisible universal church you became a part of. You should be part of a local embodiment how do we know what the church is like universally? That's so esoteric, ethereal. You're part of a realized, visible, living embodiment of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. You and I have a new corporate identity. 
through baptism, through baptism, one becomes part of many. One person trusting Christ becomes part of many believers, the body of Christ. When we share the Lord's Supper together as a church, not individually in our homes, not while we're watching the preacher on television, but we do this collectively as a church, we're acknowledging that many of us are one. Many of us are one, one body, one fellowship. We break one bread. We've been made into one. Many of us have become one. And through church membership, we affirm those commitments. Through church membership, we live out this covenant. Through church membership, we embody collectively what it means to be a Christian. And what does it mean for us on our culture? It means that our lives should be distinct from this world, for sure. It means our mission should be clear in this world. We're determined as a church to call sinners to repent of sin and trust in Christ. We're determined to do that. Why? Because of Acts chapter 17, God commands all men everywhere to repent. We cannot be faithful Christians. We cannot be faithful disciples. We cannot be faithful servants or soldiers unless we're doing that. And we are dependent on God in all of our efforts. We trust in a sovereign God. We trust in a sovereign God who will prevail. Maybe one day you and I will live in a culture where conversion laws will be passed. Maybe we're not too far from that. Maybe one day you and I will live in a culture of old persecution. I think of these poor pastors that asked me, one of the follow-up questions I was asked in almost every conference was this. Are Christians in your country persecuted too? One of the translators, before I could even answer, kind of snickered. I said, no, of course not. And I said, wait, let me answer. Let me answer. I said, you know, if you ask Christians in America that question, you probably would get an affirmative answer. Oh, yeah, we're persecuted. What do you mean by persecution? Well, you know, I put something on Twitter and people mock me. People call me a bigot. Or people, you know, people call, call me ignorant. Or, you know, people say things about me. Or, you know, I can't, I can't carry my Bible to work anymore and put it on my desk. Or you maybe you saw the guy wearing a t-shirt that says Jesus saves on it. He was in an airport in Canada and security made him take it off because it was offensive to the people around. I mean, maybe there's the slightest little bit of social pressure. But there's a tide coming. There's a wind blowing. There's a, there's a storm approaching and persecution that we need to be prepared for. And we need not think just simply because we live here in the land of the free and the home of the brave that we'll be separate from it. But we need to be prepared to stand in that moment. I said, no, we don't face this real kind of persecution. But I know this, one thing must mark our ministry in India and our ministry here. We have to be dependent on God. Our job is simply this, obedience. Faithful, confident, courageous, consistent obedience. While we trust in God, God will be God in all the world. Let's pray. Father, we glorify you for our great salvation in Christ. We thank you for saving us, for we could not, we would not, we willed not to save ourselves. But God, in your great mercy, by your grace, you have saved us. In faith, we have believed in your word. We have trusted in it. We have confessed and repented of our sin that separated us from you. And we've turned to you for salvation. And we have received hope and life 
And we glorify you for that. Salvation is not for us alone. Father, you promise in your word that one day we will gather in worship with the saints of every tribe and tongue and nation. That you will gather together from the four ends of the earth, your church, your people, that you have saved, that you have redeemed. And Father, you have told us, you have told us that as you are sovereign in the ends of those results, you are sovereign in the means to those results, that faith comes by hearing. Hearing. We must be faithful to speak the good news. And how will people hear unless someone is sent, and unless someone goes, unless someone obeys? So, Father, may we be faithful, obedient in the speaking, in the going, in the praying, and the sending. And we will trust you to save. We will trust you to honor your word. We will trust you to build a prevailing church that hell itself cannot withstand. Father, I pray that increasingly we would be a healthy church. We would hold firmly to the gospel. We would speak it clearly in love. Father, we would be a redeemed people that you use to bring about the redemption of many. That's what we want. Just simply, plainly, clearly. Make us a people that are truly yours. Who with the power of the gospel and your Holy Spirit endeavor to make more people to be truly yours together with us. Father, make it so. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.